this is David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 45 of A History of England, a tribute to the Robinocracy, as many called the long rule of Robert Walpole as Britain's first Prime Minister. Walpole was a pragmatist. You may remember that a little while ago we talked about the philosopher John Locke, who had only recently announced the empirical view that our thinking shouldn't be based on the supposedly revealed truth of faith, but on careful observation of evidence. Pragmatism is just a step further down that road, suggesting that what's possible in the real world, or even quite simply what can be made to work, is what matters, rather than what we'd like the world to be. That's a lesson more than one politician might usefully relearn today. Looking back over the previous 80 years of English history, Walpole saw that conflict over differing views of the relationship between king and parliament, or of the proper way to organise Christian worship, had descended again and again into war and destruction and suffering. What good had come out of any of that? Instead, he felt, the trick was to pursue prosperity, if everybody was better off, if everybody could see more improvement coming, they'd be that much happier and that much less inclined to run each other through with their swords. They might also be at less risk of dying of disease or hunger. Thriving business was, in his view, an essential component of prosperity. Another essential ingredient was lower taxation, and that meant reducing government debt. At least he had a flying start on that last objective. Whatever harm the South Sea Company had done, and we talked about a lot of that harm in the last couple of episodes, it had also taken over 80% of the government's debt, leaving it a great deal more solvent and robust than it had been before. One of the worst black holes for government finance was war. You chucked loads of money in, and quite a few lives, and what did you get out? If the Treaty of Utrecht at the end of the war Spanish succession was anything to go by, the answer was precious little. The conclusion was obvious. Wars were destructive in themselves and didn't generate anything like enough benefit to justify their cost. They were damaging to the financial health of the nation and led to increased public debt, the opposite of what Walpole wanted to achieve. He therefore decided to keep Britain well out of nasty entanglements in continental wars. This was the era of wars of succession in various places. We've just seen the end of the war of Spanish succession ostensibly fought to determine who should sit on the throne of Spain. In the 1730s, it was the turn of the war of Polish succession intended to decide who should be king of Poland. This time, Britain stayed well clear of the conflict. Walpole could crow, There are 50,000 men slain in Europe this year, and not one Englishman. One thing the previous war had done was massively increase the British state. That played into Walpole's hands by creating huge numbers of jobs. Some of these were sinecures, allowing him to give a man a position in which he had to do very little, but still be paid for it, while others were real jobs, offering the whole of the opportunity to build a political career. Walpole was skilled at handing out that kind of position. 
Those who were loyal were rewarded, those who were not lost out. He came to be known as Cock Robin, because Robin and Robert are close enough names, and possibly because people felt that his authority and success had made him cocky. So the system by which he ruled was quickly dubbed the Robinocracy. Walpole made a point of grabbing potential candidates for inclusion in the Robinocracy early. Every new Whig MP he'd invite to dinner one-to-one with him. As the historian Simon Sharma points out, though his rivals with their speechifying skills might outshine him, they could never outdine him. These new MPs would find themselves royally fated by the unofficial Prime Minister, who would make it absolutely clear to them that the continued success of the government in keeping Britain powerful, prosperous and peaceful depended in great part on them. With their hand holding a glass of his wine, in one year, again according to Sharma, he sent 500 dozen empty bottles back to just one of his six wine merchants. And with his succulent food in their bellies, how could these freshly minted MPs resist the temptation to join the Robinocrat bandwagon? Walpole had built a structure unique in Britain, perhaps in the world up to then. A true party machine, able to exert significant influence on the selection of candidates to Parliament and to impose discipline on them once they were there. There were still 200 Tories in Parliament, despite the massive majority the Whigs had obtained when George I took over from Anne. There were independents and there were dissident Whigs. But such was Walpole's authority that they were unable to prevent him becoming not just the first British Prime Minister, but the one with the longest tenure right up to the present day. Walpole's Britain was a story of success in which he, incidentally, shared significantly. Houghton Hall, the house he built for himself in his home village of Houghton in Norfolk, was more than a mere stately home. It was a veritable palace, built in the latest graceful Palladian style, with dear woods and beautiful vistas, and even picturesque rustic sites of farm animals, though these were kept neatly at a distance with a ha-ha, a ditch animals couldn't get across, so that no visitors would be put out by their smells and noises. They say that those who live by the sword die by it. Walpole, on the other hand, lived by not drawing the sword, and it was not drawing it that eventually killed him, or at any rate, ended his career. When pressure built for another war with Spain, some of those pesky dissident Whigs we mentioned before started to collaborate with any other MPs who disliked his approach to bring him down. Two of the most effective of those Whigs were George Grenville and William Pitt the Elder. That business of calling him the Elder is necessary because his son, also called William Pitt, with the helpful, if unimaginative, epithet, the younger, would turn out to be an even more significant politician than his father. Cock Robin's opponents mounted the kind of campaign that tends to be run against a political leader not keen on war. He was, they claimed, obviously a coward and failing his country, 
covering it with shame and dishonour by his milksop stance. It would be a long time until a poet and novelist like Robert Graves, writing of his experience in the First World War, would suggest that politicians keen on fighting wars should be the first into the front line. The pressure grew until Walpole could resist it no longer. Cock Robin's long peace was over and Britain went to war again. But it was too late to save his career. He fell from office. You'll remember that he'd got a boost in his career by siding with King George I against his estranged son, who later became George II. But, clever Cock Robin that he was, he later became a close collaborator of that very same George II, who meanwhile had fallen out with his own eldest son, Frederick. After Walpole's fall, the king raised him to the House of Lords as Earl of Oxford. Until then, he'd stuck to the Commons, the better to control his party and keep a close eye on his adversaries. But now he moved to the House of Lords to become an elder statesman. He remained a major figure on the political scene, but his time in government was over. As for Britain, not another decade would pass in the 18th century when it wasn't at war against one or other of the European nations, with France always one of its enemies. Key to all that fighting was Britain's emergence as a world power. In our next episode, we're going to start looking at how the British imperial adventure got going, and to what extent it launched, as claimed, an empire of freedom. I hope it's not a spoiler to tell you that the extent of the British Empire's commitment to freedom turned out to be not all that extensive. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>